This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The union for Stelco workers and retirees, that's local 1005 here in Hamilton, is threatening to oppose the formal request to be sold to the new owner. That's going to court later on this week. I want to bring Gary Howe into the conversation. Gary, of course, is the president of United Steel Workers at local 1005 here in Hamilton. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Gary. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on this morning. Good to have you with us. You survived the storm over the night? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, what's, what's, what's the detail here? When you and I talked a week or so ago, uh, you were very cautious about what was going on at that time and somewhat skeptical. It's, it's not, apparently nothing's changed, or is it getting worse? Yeah, so, so nothing's changed. So the reason, um, you know, why you see what you've seen in the headlines of the spec uh, this morning, you know, the union is opposing the deal. So just to start with, we're not opposed to Bedrock owning us. We're not opposed to Astor owning us. So we're we're we really we we don't really want to get involved too much with who's going to own us. What we're interested in is is what our commitments were to us. So you know the first question people should ask themselves, you know, is why is the provincial government doing a big sales job for this deal? Yeah, because they so, seem pretty hot for this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at, at the, the news release that come out late Friday, and, and the timing's interesting. So, you know, just from our perspective, and, and hopefully this will help some of the people listening, is if you look at it mathematically, in our pension plan, we're owed about $800 million. The provincial government were the ones that said that it should be paid off by the end of December 2015. It's not. So they're excited about a deal, and I'm reading it right from their statement, that, that uh, $30 million will go in up front to the four different pension plans. And Lake Erie uh, um, is the most, uh, has the highest deficiency in it, so probably the bulk of that will go to Lake Erie. That's just my, my thoughts. And then $10 million a year will go into the, the four for five years, $10 million. So... If you're 800 million short and, and normal pension funding's over five years, that means 160 should go in just to ours, and and they're excited about 10 million going into all four. So that's when I say it's a pretty lean deal. That's going forward with your fingers crossed and hoping that there's going to be enough money to pay out for everyone. Now, also. It says right in their press release that there's no obligation for a bedrock moving forward. So that means the pensions are off the balance sheet. So that's extremely concerning. So when I say, or when we say that, that you know, the province got what they wanted, so they're getting out of what their liability is for the pension benefit guarantee fund. Yeah, that so takes, they get off the hook if this deal goes through. Exactly. Good for them, not so good for the retirees. Yeah, so that's why I said, said, so the first question is you have to really ask yourself, why are they pushing this so hard? It's because they're getting off of what their liability is from their mistakes, right? So, so that, you know, that's, that's concerning. It, it, it's, you know, the, the deal is, like I said, too lean. Then, you know, like you look at all the details of, of, the, of what's just going into the pension, and that's before you get into anything else. Then you have the deal for the OPEBs. The deal for the OPEBs is, is really, there's a, right now, no matter which way you slice or dice it, right now there's only enough money for five years for OPEBs. And after that, 
um, you know, it, it does. It looks extremely dire. Um, and then the other thing you've seen too in the paper that you know the the mayor's saying, and we've met with the mayor, um, that you know the city wasn't involved. So the city has a role to play in this deal as well. So what they're trying to do is is they're trying to you know come down hard and jam through a deal this Thursday, um, you know before Christmas, and hoping they get this through. And this is like, you know, one of the final stages before they finally go for their plan of arrangement. There's a bunch of things that, that, that trouble me about this. First of all, uh, the, the stuff I saw today, Gary, uh, was, talks about a land trust. Uh, includes a share in a proposed land trust meant to ensure retirees benefit from the eventual sale and redevelopment of that vacant land. You know, it's, we don't know for sure that they're going to even sell the land, do we? No, so that that's another thing, you know. So I mean, that's that's, that's the, they're basing about. their numbers on the fact that well, that yeah, you guys are going to get some of the profits from the land sale. That's only if they decide to sell it. If they don't, then where's that money going to come from? Yeah, well, then you have to try to lease the land or or, or do whatever well, you can from the land to 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 you know to get some money. But then also, you have costs from the land. Sure, you, know, you have to pay. You know, the city's obviously interested in in getting tax revenue off that land. Um, you know, which is, is, is very important to them. Um, you know, you have to be able to maintain that land. You know, today's a perfect day. Like, you got to be able to clear the snow, um, you know, do maintenance on all the land. Um, so there's, there's a litany of things that you have to do. You have to be able to govern the land because there's a bunch of different stakeholders, right? You also have the salary group that's obviously interested in getting what they deserve as well. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different problems um, that this thing raises. So there's a land trust, there's a health care trust, there's a pension trust. Um, you know, none of these things have been really discussed with us uh, in detail with the province. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's quite a few things and quite a few details, um, you know, on these things that remain to be answered. And, you know, like I said, on Friday was the first time we've seen this 311-page document, um, which, you know, we've been asking to see for several weeks. A couple of things going on. I got an email from somebody this morning that uh, says, well, you know, didn't the guys in, in Lake Erie write a letter of endorsement? And I want to clarify that because I did tell Bill Ferguson on the show a couple of weeks ago when that letter came out. And I know you and Bill talk on a regular basis, Gary. Uh, what uh, what eighty seven eighty two did was endorse the process of saying, yeah, we want to move forward with the negotiations. They didn't say all the fine details were okay with them because clearly they're not. Uh, and and Bill Ferguson was cautiously optimistic, saying, yeah, we want to find. In other words, you're not going to get any details and still move forward on this. But it sounds as if you guys haven't made too much in the way of progress here with the province and with Bedrock to try to get some of these details formalized and finalized. Yeah. So 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 we've really made no headway. With, with the pension issue and, and with the benefit issue. Uh, so the, and those are two big key areas. Um, and, you know, you know, with regards to jobs, uh, I mean, right now the economy, everything looks fantastic uh, with regards to, to steel. Um, you know, it looks, you know, as, as we all know in Hamilton, steel is a cyclical industry. Yeah. Um, you know, with uh, everything in the protectionism in the states, things look particularly good. The company, as we've talked about, has at least $237 million cash on hand. So they could well afford to pay benefits right now. So things look good. And, you know, like what we've talked about is, is those lands, 
in Hamilton and at Lake Erie can support a lot more jobs than what we currently have. Um, you know, and obviously that's what, you know, people in Hamilton are interested in, and obviously we're interested, and I'm sure the mayor's interested in the same thing. This this is the line that really got me concerned here this morning as well. Uh, this agreement is meant to ensure that operations continue at both Hamilton and Lake Erie Mills. That's great news. Yeah, we want to see that happen, of course. While retirees would continue to receive unreduced, uninterrupted pension benefits. That's the, from the province. That's the media release you talked about a couple of minutes ago, Gary. This is from the province, not from Bedrock. Right. Yep, but I'm the, gov- the province doesn't say how that's going to happen. They've also said that Bedrock's not going to be on the hook for stuff after this initial payment. So how can they say they're going to be uninterrupted? Well, it, that's what I said. It, it, it's going to be un- in, uninterrupted for the short term. Yeah. And, and then here's the concerning part when, I, when I've said that they've kicked the problem down the road is then then the superintendent uh, has the uh, has the ability to wind up the pension plan whenever he feels he should that that he has that power so you know that's not going to do anything for the city of hamilton or you know active or retired members that want to retire or are retired you know that you know all you know the pension plan could get wound up whenever the superintendent decides to wind it up and so a lot of people are saying, well, if that's the case, then, you know, like, maybe we should wind it up now. And that's exactly what the province doesn't want to happen, because then they'd be on the hook for around, you know, half a billion dollars. How are you going to get everybody around the table? I, I saw the quote from uh, Mayor Eisenberger. As a matter of fact, uh, the mayor was on the show on Friday, and I asked him about this uh, at the very same time. Uh, this is before we got the details, uh, about the proposed details anyway, about this deal. And and he was expressing concern at that time, and I see he's quoted uh, in, the, in the news today saying the same thing, that they're not being consulted about this. The province is making all these announcements, and, and it's great that they are, they're showing some recognition and some, some, some attention to the steel industry. That's fabulous news for all of us. But they're not talking with you guys. They're not talking to the city. Yet you both of you guys have a, a huge stake in this. Yeah, and that, that's the alarming thing because the province is definitely uh, – driving the agenda for everybody in in you know you've seen two two big articles in the front of the spec today hydro and you know our situation both of these issues were being mastermind or, or spearheaded by one of the premier's advisors ed clark um who's a retired uh, ceo from td bank um you know and people i'm sure people have told you what they feel about hydro um, oh, yeah. So that doesn't give me a real comforting feeling, uh, like having that type of, uh, you know, like for him dealing for our situation. And, by the way, and this is public information, Mr. Clark, you know, he's a rich man. He has a pension where he gets $2.23 million lifetime for his pension, and it's uninterrupted even if he passes away. His wife continues to get that amount. So, you know, he can't, in my view, this is my opinion, he can't really relate to, uh, you know, Stelco pensioners or probably getting a $1,000 a month and ha- have their benefits cut off when you have a company that's, that, that doesn't need to do that right now. Um, you know, and he, then the next move that he's probably going to make, if we don't agree to this, then he's going to liquidate uh, Hamilton, which would be absolutely, like, like hysterical with, with the way the market is right now because there's other people that want to buy it. So, you know, that's one thing they don't tell you about So in this press release. What about the other bidders that were willing to take the pension on the balance sheet? What happened to them?
Well, they don't and even get, they weren't even considered. The, you know, the, well, the, the court didn't that? even want to look at them. Well, the courts didn't. That's the frustration no, about this whole thing. It's, 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 it's the guys that are driving the agenda here that decided that. So, so we talked about it before that it, it, it's like the two-person U.S. Steel Canada board of directors can reject any bid. So, you know, so they can decide what's best for everybody when, you know, like, the, you know, and, and from the start of this process, the whole agenda was to offload pension liabilities. And, and I mean, it's not just that here. They're trying to do that everywhere. And, I, you know, Bill Ferguson and I have said, you know, if they get away with doing that here, offloading their pension liability, there'll be a long lineup of other companies. That oh, sure, there. you can count on that. But I'm glad you drew the analogy with the, the, the hydro rate situation, though, Gary, because it's it's very apropos of what we're talking about here. Uh, and, and maybe some of the people in Queen's Park can't seem to grasp this, but you've got somebody who's maybe worked 25, 30, 40 years at, at, at Stelco, now they're retired. They're on a fixed income now. And, of course, you know, their benefits have been cut off. Their hydro rates are going through the roof. They can't afford to pay those hydro bills. And then all of a sudden, what happens if one of them gets ill and they have to go get a prescription? Well, I'm sorry, it's not covered anymore. That, I mean, that's the reality that, that, that's going on in this, in this community right now and in so many other communities. And, and I, I'm, I'm flummoxed and flabbergasted that the province would come up with an idea like this and says, don't worry, everything's going to be uninterrupted. When the, with the very next line, they suggest that, well, at any time they could pull the plug on this when they think that it's, it's right to do. Well, that's not uninterrupted. They're really speaking yeah. out of both sides of their mouths here. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You got you, you got the point, Bill. So where do you go from here? I mean, there, there, there's going to be a hearing on Thursday, and obviously you guys will be there. Uh, do you take a position, or are you just going to go and see what's going to be said? What happens next? No, obviously we're talking to, to other people, and we're, yeah. we're going to take a position um, and try to get others, you know, like the to think the same way that we do, and and they do think the same way. So we need to. To take a position, I mean, the, the, the salary folks, um, you know, especially in Hamilton, are in the same boat as us, a lot of them. Um, the other thing I just want to mention, if I have the, uh, is we're going to have a bus uh, going from, from uh, our union hall at, at 7.15 on Thursday. Uh, so if anybody's interested in going, call the union hall and, and we'll sign you up to go on the bus. And people should see it because it is quite interesting when you go to court to see actually what happens and what goes on and all the lawyers. Here's the bottom line, and, and we've had discussions with you and with Bill Ferguson and with lots of other people involved in this process over the years, and, and the legislation as it stands right now, which is federal legislation, is there to protect creditors, and, and they do very little, obviously, for the employees and for the pensioners, and that's pretty much established. We know that. And, and the court's excuse is always, well, that's what the law says, and we're here to uphold the law. But the government, the provincial government, doesn't have to be beholden to that they're the ones that should be getting your back on this and i'm not so sure that they are yet and that's why you know obviously we're so upset is because the government should not be a salesperson for this job they sound like used carsmen salesmen for on trying to push this deal forward when it's uh they're getting the best of the deal and you know like whoever the company is whether it's bedrock bedrock's gonna make probably a it's going to be deja vu all over again. They're going to probably make a billion dollars or whatever they're going to make. I mean, it's going to be a lot of money they make. And, the, the, you know, us, the members and the retired members are going to be the ones that suffer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
When uh, Mayor Eisenberger was in the uh, studio the other day for the Mayor's Town Hall, we got talking uh, off the air about the, the length of the council meeting that had just happened the day before that. Uh, it was almost 12 hours long. And, uh, and now that was a bit of an anomaly, but longer meetings have been happening more and more often down at Hamilton City Hall, uh, much to the chagrin of some of the councillors and certainly to staff and, and to members of the public, by the way, that have to sit through there. I mean, if you've got an item on the agenda, something of interest to you, uh, you you got to sit. You got to listen to the whole thing, and you got to put money in. The, you know, you got to pay to park down there if that's what you've done. Taking a vehicle down there, on and on it goes. So anyway, they had a discussion about it at, at the meeting, uh, and the councillors said, "Well, it's it's partly staff's fault, you know, for th- dumping all this stuff onto the agenda." I'm reminded of that old song from the '60s called "You Talk Too Much," um, which maybe seems to apply here. I want to bring uh, somebody who used to try to look after some of these meetings and chair some of these meetings. He was former mayor for the city of Hamilton. Larry DeAndy joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Larry, how are you doing today? I am well, Bill, or maybe I added to the length of some of those meetings as well. Well, let's let's talk about that. And, and there is a shred of evidence to suggest that, that the agendas are getting a little bit longer and a little bit yeah. bigger. But but again, when you peel back a couple of the layers there, as uh, the, some of the staff uh, suggested, it's partly because council keeps referring stuff to that committee. So, I mean, you know, if this is, uh, you know, they, they doth protest too much. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I thought that the article in the paper was accurate on a number of points, uh, and they were quoting councillors. Uh, one is that, <clears throat> well, let's start with the premise that a good, healthy democracy needs good, healthy debate, and and that does take some time. So, it, you know, if you agree that you want to see a good democratic process unfold in our city council, you're going to have to expect that it's going to take some time, and when things are contentious, and sometimes adversarial. That's going to add to the length of the time. And I, I don't disagree. That, As a matter of fact, yeah. not only should you expect, you should demand it. Right. So that said, though, um, are we at a point where meetings are so long that they become unproductive? And for evidence of that, let's just listen to what some of the councillors have said. You know, one of the councillors was quoted as saying that at the end of an 11-hour meeting, you go squirrely and you don't make the best-informed uh, uh, decision, clear-headed decisions at, at that point in time. Uh, others have indicated that, uh, that in fact, uh, uh, maybe the, uh, the meeting should be split, uh, you know, uh, between two days or there should be a clear break so that people can walk around and get a breath of fresh air and catch their second wind, if you will. So that is clear evidence that's, that we're not being as well served as we might be uh, because of the length of these meetings. And, and I, Bill, you know, it, it is a conundrum. But on the other hand, there are some structural things that can be done. You know, I watch, maybe I'm the only one um, in this city that watches our, our parliamentary channels, both at the provincial and the federal levels, and the fascinating ones are at the committee level because... Although question period is, is theater and entertaining, uh, not a lot gets done. But if you watch the, uh, the parliamentary channels when committees are being held, everybody is timed to a length, and <clears throat> if they go beyond that length, they have to borrow it from the next speaker. And the chair is very strict about that, and the parliamentarians themselves are very aware of that protocol and don't break it. So I would say that one of the things that can be done at the city level is adhere to the speaking rule, uh, where here, here. you speak once, you speak for a length of time, and maybe five minutes isn't enough, 
and maybe you get a chance to come back one more time, but not multiple times as, as often happens. So that's a structural thing that can be done. Then there's a behavioral thing that can be done as well, I think. If you listen to the debates at city council, they really are divided into two uh, perspectives as far as I'm concerned, maybe, maybe more, but certainly two. And one of them is that people seek information. They ask questions of staff. They pursue a line of thought or they pursue a, a certain type of question to try to get information so that then they can make a decision. All of that stuff, Bill, can be done ahead of time. No kidding. It, it doesn't need to be done around the council table because the reports are given to the councillors ahead of time. And councillors will read them and they can phone staff, they can meet with staff, they can inform themselves as fully as possible so that, indeed, they are ready to make decisions and debate points of view as opposed to seeking items of clarification and so on. And some do that. Some do that. But I'm going to let people in on a little secret that I know you're aware of. They should know this, too. Even those counselors who do seek out staff and find out, hey, what did you mean by this line here? Hey, what's that number from? And they'll get their answer. But then they'll ask the question again on committee because the public's there. And and it's well, it's it's no come on you know what happens not all of them do yes, it but yes, they yes. it's 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 all showmanship absolutely it, the public is there and and the cameras are there and uh, you know there's a point that some of them would make that not only uh, do you need uh, to do your job you need to be seen doing your job um, and and so they they may want to pursue a, a particular line of questioning to show that. I'm being tough on, on this particular issue or I'm being probing on this particular issue. But that does consume time, so you can't have it both ways. You either, you either are efficient uh, and effective or you have these multiple-hour meetings that then make you squirrely by the end of them. That doesn't serve anybody well at all. I've, I've always so, maintained uh, that I, I thought the most efficient counselor that I ever worked with or saw, even just as, a, as an observer, uh, was Murray Ferguson, Lloyd Ferguson's brother, when he was on council. Uh, he was a, he was a man of few words, but when he spoke, you listened because you knew that oh, this was important. And nobody worked harder. Nobody did more research. I mean, this guy did his homework on everything, but oh, he, he didn't. Yeah. He never grants. He would never grandstand at meetings or at, at committee meetings because he didn't figure that's not my job. I'm just I'll get the information. I'll make my decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you looked at the de- definition of terse in the dictionary, you'd probably find his picture. And I know that he worked very hard uh, because I share, I, at least my office was right next door to him. Yeah. And he was there, you know, morning, noon, and night. And that's probably what led to his health issues, unfortunately. But here's uh, the, but, yeah. but, but that, the antithesis of that are the people that use these meetings to try to, you know, move themselves forward, whether it's, well, they're all televised, I guess, now because you can stream these meetings now. Uh, right. But but as a result of this stuff, though, Larry, you've got this stuff that goes on. And what they do is, and your point about the, the length of time that they're allowed to speak, I think is very germane to this. I mean, there is a, right now there's a rule that says you can speak for five minutes. And I remember when you and I were on council, this is going back just after amalgamation, uh, when they did the renovations down to the council chambers that time, they made a big deal about the fact that, yes, and you know what? These microphones, this sound system is so good, and the, the microphones will shut off after five minutes, and that'll end. Well, you see what happens. They do that now, and they just put, reach over and t- punch it and turn it back on again and just keep going. Yeah, a- absolutely. In fact, uh, what was supposed to be a technological answer to that issue um, became uh, uh, not so much of one because of the override provisions as well. Uh, so, What about the role of the chair, Larry? Well, the chair needs to be fair, 
but firm. There's no question about that. The chair, you know, I mean, these are your colleagues, and at some point somebody else is going to be in that chair, and you're going to want to have your say. So you don't want to be treated shoddily or be given the bum's rush. You need to make your points. But the chair needs, well, you know, the chairs know when when you reach um, um, a level where you've repeated yourself or you're making the same points, and the chair needs to step in and there say, and say, counselor, we've we've gone down that road. You've made your points. We're moving on. And unless that's that's done uh, in again a fair way, uh, then it's going to be problematic for sure. See, and therein lies part of the problem. And and I'm yeah. not going to point fingers at individuals. I just want to make a blanket statement here. Uh, again, a past council has adopted a policy or had adopted a policy that basically gave everybody on council a chance to be the chair of different committees or, or you know, of, of the committee of the whole or whatever they want to call it these days. And and frankly, Larry, not everybody is capable of doing that. They don't have uh, the, the, the ability or they either will not or cannot control a meeting and they just let things go off, uh, uh, you know, in different directions. And therein lies part of the problem because once that starts happening and you let Councillor A start to go longer than they have and, and maybe push the limits a little bit, then Councillor B is going to say, wait a second, I demand fair time, equal time, and the next thing you know, you've got what we've seen happen way too many times in the council you chamber. Lose, you lose control. Yeah. Sure. And, and you know, I don't remember in all my years, I was involved for many, many years, uh, there ever being any training for people on how to chair meetings. And that should be something that, that uh, in a discreet and sensitive way, um, should be offered to all members of council. There are some who don't have the experience and can use them more than others. But even even um, with training, then you've got to have a little bit of gumption to say, look, these are the rules of the, that we've all agreed to, and I'm going to stick to those rules. Well, but the, the, these guys, they go off on little side tangents. I'll give you an example. Five-minute rule. Okay, so Councillor A gets up and, and they start speaking. But they question staff. And for some reason, this this idea of this five-minute rule has morphed into, well, if I'm asking questions, that's not really my five minutes. So I can take as long as I want to ask questions. And then after 15 or 20 minutes of grilling somebody on staff, then you can launch into your five-minute speech. Uh, th- that's yes. not what the rule's there for. And that's 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 really abusing the, the, the privilege and the rules there. But, Yet it happens all the time. And, and there, again, is another example where the chair can step in and say, no, I, uh, Councillor, this, this is an item for uh, clarification and information for yourself. It should have happened before, and uh, we're going to move on to the debate because we have a question before us that needs to be decided. And here's a question in case you need to be reminded. And if you have a pro or con argument to make, make it. you got five minutes. And uh, move on. But everybody needs to agree, though, that that's the protocol. If they don't, it's going to be problematic. See, there's, there's two things that I think could be done easily here to fix this. Uh, and, and you use the example of what goes on at Queen's Park and in Ottawa in those legislatures. Uh, first of all, the people that are speaking should not have control of their microphones. You'll notice, for instance, even in question period of, yeah. in, in Parliament, when your time's up, your mic's shut down. Yeah. Done. That's it. You, you don't control it. It's, it's done someplace else. You can't override it. You can't do anything else. You're done. Uh, and, and as we say, councillors here simply have to reach over, push the button, and then just keep going on and on and on. And the other thing is you've got to have people adhere to that rule, to that five. You, and you're right. If you want to make it seven minutes, that's fine. That's a discussion they can have. But they're pretty darn sure that they, you know, when there's a public uh, delegation that comes in there, they hold them to the time limit. <laughs> they do. They do well. And sometimes they do give some license there as well. 
Um, and it's tough to make a case on a complicated issue within five minutes. So they really need to look at that time limit. But once you agree to a time limit, stick to it. If you're interested in efficiency and if you're interested in clear-headed decision-making as opposed to going on for 12 hours, and I mean, people understand, the public understands that if you're sitting down for 12 hours and expected to maintain your focus and control and lucidity for that period of time, ain't going to happen. It just is not going to happen. And so nobody is well served by that. And and let's let's be clear about exactly what they're there for. They're there to to pass you know laws, to pass bylaws, to to comment on planning issues, etc. And you'll notice just the, during the televised meetings that that'll be going on. And I know that one of the criticisms has always been you know okay the planning meeting uh, item one carried item two you know and then somebody will tap on their glass and say Mr. Chairman I just want to bring to the light the, you know what item four is for the sake of the you know why do that I mean why would you waste people's time. It's really just to put FaceTime up there. I mean, if people are following the agenda, they already know. They do. They do. And and that sometimes for extraordinary things uh, or things that may be happening in the community in a particular ward, for example, and, and the councillor wants to catch as many people's attention as possible, can be allowed to happen. But if it's, you know, the, uh, the ribbon cutting at the local... Uh, um, new um, uh, store that opened up, uh, uh, then uh, you wonder whether there's any public interest in that other than a very local interest that, that says, you know, I'm a, as a counselor, look what I'm doing on the weekend, even even though I, I should have some time off. I, I think there are other ways of conveying that. I know most of them do newsletters. They can include pictures. Most of them do. So there are ways of, of, uh, of speaking to their, to their constituents also about ceremonial events that people do find somewhat interesting. But again, if the intent is to have clear-headed decision-making in a timely, efficient meeting, then all of these ancillary things that you pile on detract from that, and, uh, and that's not good. Well, I can remember when I was elected back in 1997, they gave me a copy of the, the Rules of Order. Uh, and I don't know if anybody even reads those things. But, I mean, you, you talked about maybe training for people that are chairing meetings, and that's not a bad idea. But there should also be training for counselors, new counselors and veteran counselors, to act on behavior during debate and meetings. Uh, you know, if you know if, if they say, well, I'm opposed to LRT, and, counsel, and the next person gets up and says, well, I'm supportive of it, the guy who opposed it wants to get back on and says, yeah, well, here's why. We already know that. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. that's pettiness, really. You know, yeah. I think... Robert's rules, I mean, sometimes I got the impression when I was on council that the only person who really knew the Robert's rules of order was the clerk. And and the clerk should have a level of expertise because they're often called to adjudicate on a particular process issue. But really, if you're chairing and you don't know your Robert's rules, um, uh, which, which really are the governing rules for how you chair and when people speak and what sorts of interventions they can make, then, uh, then you're not uh, being as effective a chairperson as well. And that needs, uh, that, that needs to happen for sure. Uh, and it can. And, you know, I mean, it was it Council Marula was quoted as saying, oh, I guess we're the problem, or words to that effect. Yes, uh, the process. The process and how people interact with the process seems to be the problem. So they, I, I didn't see anybody unwilling to, to, to deal with it. And, you know, they did make some good suggestions. I think maybe dividing long meetings into two days is probably a good one. The, the, the recommendation well, they do, they do that in Toronto. They absolutely They have huge in agendas in Toronto, obviously. It's a much bigger city. In fact, exactly. And, in fact, sometimes their meetings last four days. I, I, I 
been to some of uh, the meetings for different reasons, uh, where the agenda just spills over a number of days, and they plan for that. Uh, you know, breaking uh, so that you don't have a working lunch, uh, but actually breaking and giving people a chance to go and catch up on their emails and then come back. A little well, and, bit and that kills two birds with one stone because a lot of people are upset about the fact that counselors still, you know, charge the public for lunches. I mean, you know, the, they'll bring food yeah. in. Now, I, I don't I think that's no. much of a deal, but some people yeah. do get their, know. you know, I know. and that's I know. that's fine. But then break and go and, you know, go buy your lunch or whatever yeah. you or bring it or yeah. whatever you want to do. And, and like you say, yeah. sometimes just taking a 15, 20 minute break or half an hour break will clear your head and you can maybe be a little more efficient in the afternoon if that's what you're going to do. Absolutely. And, and you can go and check your email or respond to it. Instead of doing it while people are doing, whatever yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. And, and then you're clear. So, so there, you know, the answer lies within council's um, jurisdiction. If they're really interested in, in uh, fixing um, some of these uh, uh, issues, then they can do it. And then the other is the self-reflection. So am I, if I'm a counselor, am I contributing all the time? Am I elongating when I don't need to? Am I bloviating sometimes? Am I being as efficient and terse and pithy as I can? Or am I being exactly the opposite? And that sort of self-reflection is important. And by the way, you can go to your council colleague and say, look, how am I coming across? Um, I'm trying to make that point, but gosh, it didn't seem to happen. Or I, yeah, how am I coming across? And and you know, there aren't uh, too many people who would be shy about telling their colleagues uh, in a confidential and positive way, especially if they ask uh, some advice on that. Is that likely to happen? I don't know. I I, I would seriously doubt that it would. And, and maybe that's the message we got to get across more than anything else. It, 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 <laughs> It's not about you, counselors. It's not about you. It's supposed to be about the city. Uh, instead of saying, well, I've got to speak three times because this is a televised meeting, or, or there's a group up there that, uh, you know, from my ward, and I want to make sure that I recognize all of them. On and on and on it goes. And, and, and those are the same people that are complaining about how long the meetings are. I mean, look at yeah. yourself in the mirror and, and decide, you know, is this really serving the purpose of what we're here for? Or is it really just to try to, you know, gain more exposure for me as a counselor? And then that's, that's part of the frustration when you're watching this stuff. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, and, and you know what? I, I'm really impressed. Uh, and I listened to, to, you know, for many years I've followed counselors and, and their perspective and have spoken to them. Um, uh, regularly about various issues. They're very well-informed. They really are a group of well-informed people because they live and breathe the work that they do. So they should take that knowledge and and channel it in an appropriate way so that decision-making can also be crystal clear, efficient, and for the public good. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump says that it is absolutely ridiculous to think that Russia interfered in the U.S. election. Now, this comes in spite of the fact that a CIA report concludes that connections with the Russian government provided WikiLeaks with thousands of emails from the Democratic National Committee to boost Trump's chances. There's speculation about this time and time again, but you know, during the campaign itself. Um, but the, now that the CIA has investigated this and says, yeah, there's uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, yet the president-elect uh, just chooses not to. And, of course, many of his advocates have jumped to his, uh, his side as well. What about the, the influence of, of Russian governments and, and the impact that they could be having here? And what's this going to do, obviously, to what's going to be happening with U.S.-Russian relations 
uh, after uh, the president-elect is sworn in in January. Joining us to talk about this is Simon Palomar, Research Assistant for the Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Bill. Let's, uh, are you surprised by uh, the president-elect's uh, poo-hooing of the uh, report from the CIA? Uh, no, not at this point. Um, it's not surprising. It is disappointing. Uh, I think it's really important that we're all aware of the, how unprecedented this whole situation is. Uh, you know, the CIA is fairly used to being used as a political football in Washington. You know, you can go back to the Bush years, and as Mr. Trump did, cite the fact that uh, sometimes the CIA has gotten intelligence, intelligence assessments wrong. Um, and the CIA, of course, has a checkered past doing some unsavory things in uh, during the Cold War in Latin America. So the CIA is used to, you know, being used as a political football in Washington to have Democrats or Republicans beat up on it or, you know... Um, accuse it of perhaps missing the the boat or getting something wrong. But a situation like this, where there's a near consensus, practically a consensus across American law enforcement and intelligence agencies that Russia did get involved with the American election, uh, to stick their necks out like this and say, well, not just that Russia got involved, but got involved with the specific goal of influencing the election one way or another that's a very you know it's a very big risk the cia is taking and which suggests to me that there's that they're very very confident in their conclusion so for the president-elect to simply dismiss it and say well they don't know what they're talking about there there's there's nothing here this really is you know uncharted waters and you know very very interesting development yeah, and uh, there's there's a couple of different things at play here, obviously, with the CIA, because, I mean, it's, it's as because you, you've nailed it, Simon, I mean, both Democratic and Republican administrations have, have been critical of the CIA at different times. And, and of course, Bob Woodward's book about uh, the Bush administration and their plan for, uh, you know, shock and awe and the, and the uh, invasion of Iraq uh, certainly exposed a lot of the shortcomings of the CIA. But at the same time, these guys don't really get a chance to fight back, do they? Because there's, there's not a whole lot that they can talk about uh, that, you know, that's not confidential. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, it's, it's almost a one-sided battle when there's a fight between the administration and the CIA. Yeah, I'd say that's correct. I mean, despite the fact that, like I just said, and you pointed out that the CIA has often been politicized, you know, often by, you know, well, politicians in Washington, there is... It's an organization with a very strong professional ethos. They, you're not allowed to talk out of turn. It's frowned upon. It's not only illegal, but also <laughs> frowned upon to, you know, break ranks in the CIA, go to reporters, leak uh, information. It very much is uh, an organization with a strong ethos that you work for the American government, you work for the American people, you work for the American president, regardless of who that president is. So... In a situation like this, where they seem to have very strong reason to believe that a foreign government attempted to interfere with some of the, the fundamental workings of the American democracy, they will make a statement to that effect because it is their, in fact, their duty to do so. It's their obligation to inform lawmakers about their conclusions. But 
it would be extremely frowned upon for the CIA to, you know, figuratively, you know, shoot back at President Trump. I mean, their their job is not to get involved in politics, but their job is to tell, you know, the president, Congress, etc., what they think is going on. So they are in a bind in that regard right now. And I would be I would be shocked if the CIA were to attempt to defend their reputation. You know, I don't think they will. Uh, and that means that, at least for the time being, Donald Trump, his surrogates can say, in fact, what they want. And uh, unless Democrats or other Republicans want to defend the agency on this issue, the CIA is out of luck. And, it's, and I know that it's not just the Trump, Mr. Trump, but it's other, it's some of his advocates, of course, uh, that, that are coming to his defense in this stage. But, I mean, this is a little more than circumstantial, though, isn't it really, Simon? I mean, you know, the guy who started the whole WikiLeaks thing uh, is in Moscow. At the, you know, he's the, the guest of the Russian government, and that seems a little more than coincidental, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the From my understanding, the, the evidence, and, you know, I think I really we do need to remember... And I'll, and I'll emphasize that it's, you know, the CIA is the organization that came out and said that we believe that Russian efforts were meant to support Donald Trump. Other law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, the FBI, for example, also believes that Russia was involved in efforts to sway the election. They just didn't come to the same conclusion that it was to support Donald Trump. I mean, the FBI is a law enforcement agency. They tend to use a higher, they have to, they tend to, tend to look for a higher standard of evidence before they come to a, a, con- a conclusion like that that they'll share publicly. But the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, National Security Agency, a lot of American intelligence agencies are all coming to the similar conclusion that it was certainly Russia that's involved. So there's some debate about what their exact goals was. The CIA is very confident it was to support Trump. But yeah, the evidence at this point seems to be quite consistent across the board that this was they were Russian hackers, uh, either working directly for the Russian uh, State uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, the GRU, or they were subcontractors. And uh, and the uh, forensic evidence, the trail that they that hackers often leave when they uh, break into a computer system, is all is all consistent with it being uh, a Russian operation. The fact that that uh, that Julian Assange of WikiLeaks has links to to Russia uh, through some of his intermediaries is, you know, adds to that story. And then that Edward Snowden, who who broke the the story on NSA's uh, surveillance of American phone lines, Internet, et cetera, the fact that he fled to Moscow and now lives there. I mean, this all does add up to a fairly consistent story about um, how Russian intelligence operates now against the United States where they think the United States is vulnerable and where they are going to uh, continue to hit them. Let me ask you something about uh, the, the, the nefarious uh, goings-on that happened, the cloak-and-dagger stuff, uh, because, I mean, this is not the first time that there, there have been accusations of a foreign government trying to influence the outcome of elections or, or, or the politics of another country right now, but is it more feasible now than ever before because of this, this ability to, to be able to hack into somebody's records? Yeah, it does appear to be uh, more feasible. I mean, this is one of the the double-edged swords of communicating over the Internet nowadays, um, which is that it's fast, nearly instantaneous. uh, You can manage large amounts of data. um, But it means that all that data tends to be stored 
in one place, and it's stored remotely, which means it can be hacked remotely. Uh, there are some, you know, benefits to the uh, to the old school technologies of telefaxes, of uh, telephones, of you know, mail and courier bags, because they are in fact more difficult to um, to intercept those communications. And in fact, in some cases, we've seen some embassies around the world. Uh, and some governments start to look at those technologies again. So the the technology, you know, in and of itself, does make this sort of uh, operation easier, right? The fact that the Democratic National uh, Committee, all their aides, staffers, that everybody, you know, was using uh, one email server where at least those messages were routed through that server, that meant there was, you know, one sort of mother load for somebody who wanted to break into it. They break into that server, they get, you know, quote, they get, so to speak, everything. So there's the technology. There's also the fact that, you know, we're in a bit of a moment right now, um, and you being somebody who works in media are, of course, aware of the, that there is distrust amongst some, uh, some media consumers about you know who who to trust what mm-hmm. what media sources are you know in the bag for one candidate which ones are truly objective and that that general feeling of distrust of unease with traditional media i think has made people vulnerable to you know news stories that sound pretty true but you know are are, are essentially are essentially complete fabrications so there is some suspicion that you know intelligence agencies have been playing around at the margins of that. I mean, disinformation is a classic technique in spycraft, and it's entirely possible that that was part of it, too. So uh, those two factors, I think, do make it easier today than in the past. I, I mean, in a, in a very elementary way. I mean, well, just I, what brought it back to mind, of course, was the death of Castro the other day. Uh, and we know about some of the CIA plots back in the in the late 50s, early 60s. Well, more to the 60s, once pa- Castro took power in Cuba, uh, of uh, of course, before the Bay of Pigs, there were other things too that uh, they tried to infiltrate the Castro administration. So you know that happened back in those days. So it would only stand to reason that, of course, it's continuing to happen, but probably in in a more complicated fashion now, simply because of the technology that's available. Yeah, and that that's exactly it. Is that is very much the same. You know, governments haven't changed their goals. Uh, we are, you know, Canadian government still tries to. You know, engages in diplomacy, for example, with the United States, but now uh, Ambassador might get on Twitter or something like that. And likewise, um, intelligence operations have, you know, changed as well. And and we are very much in a, in a new era in that regard. If you wanted to steal an election in the past, uh, you might have had people literally at polling stations ballots are intimidating people trying to keep them away that did happen during you know the cold war on on both sides so there would be efforts to literally steal elections away in client countries you know now part of the debate about whether or not the united states should do a recount in pennsylvania in wisconsin for example is the fact that these states use electronic voting machines that they you use a paper ballot but then a, a machine with a with an optical eye, counts the the millions of ballots, you know, very quickly. This machine is run by software. Uh, this software, you know, is known to have certain vulnerabilities. So now there is speculation. Well, you know, 
if Russian intelligence operators or subcontractors working for a foreign government, you know, hacked the email servers of of uh, the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party, that they engaged in efforts to influence the election, is it not possible, is it prudent to look at, you know, these voting machines? Were they compromised? No one's necessarily saying that they were, but that's where the, where the imagination starts to race, which is if we know that a government is doing, or we suspect a government is doing one thing, trying to influence an election, you know, what else might they be trying to do? And, you know, 50 years ago, an electronic voting machine wouldn't have, wasn't a thing, so it wasn't an issue. You had to literally stuff the ballot box. Today, you know, when we're being prudent, when we're being critical, and we're trying to figure out, you know, are there vulnerabilities here that we haven't thought of that are new? Uh, the, the recount in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, part of that effort is to get at that, to figure out have these machines been compromised? Are we looking at a much deeper, broader, more complex uh, threat than we first thought. And, and we should mention, by the way, uh, and I haven't seen the report, but I've read the overviews of it anyway, uh, there's no insinuation at all here that, that Trump was in, involved in this, that they're simply saying the Russian no. government was. And I know Mr. Trump has, has actually poo-hooed this again, has just been dismissive of it, and said, well, this is just, you know, this is all being fueled by the Democrats who are upset that they didn't win the election. But uh, two of the staunchest Republicans uh, in Congress, uh, Mitch McConnell and John McCain, both very staunch Republicans, uh, are also supportive of the CIA report. So this is this is this is not a partisan issue at this stage, at least not in their minds, anyway. No, and that's precisely it. Uh, and it's something that I think is really worth remembering that uh, the Republican Party. I mean, oh, let's think back to George W. Bush or his father or, or Ronald Reagan. The idea that uh, that if the USSR or Russia was trying to interfere in an American election, regardless of who they were trying to get elected or, or if they were just trying to sow mayhem, there would be a, a quite a strong response from, from Republicans. I mean, an election is, you know, one of the bedrocks of American democracy, and it shouldn't matter, you know, why a foreign power is trying to influence the outcome or, or, or mess around with it, that there should be a response that you don't let a foreign government compromise your, your elections. And that's very much, you know, what we're hearing from McCain and McConnell. And, and there is no evidence that Donald Trump was involved in this, in this plot. And as I said before, there's still some debate about, you know, what the ultimate goals of the Russian interference were but the idea that that uh, a foreign power could meddle in an election and do so unrepentantly and that the president elect would kind of shrug his shoulders and say well it's nonsense uh, because just because he won i mean that's a rather unfortunate development and it doesn't bode well for the next 4 years because you know we haven't even seen Mr. Trump inaugurated yet and already we we do see Republicans who, you know, immediately after the election, when uh, when Trump was, you know, basking in, in the glow of victory and Democrats felt rather dejected, everybody suddenly saw, well, all the Republicans are getting on board. They've unified. It's going to be off to the races. It's going to be a unified, cohesive government uh, come late January. Now it's looking already like there are, you know, new fronts in the and, and the battle that began between some Republicans and Donald Trump a year and a half ago, I mean, it looks like uh, 
looks like it's going to continue, and it's going to be a real challenge if the you know prominent, respected voices in the Senate and the House representatives and the president can't get along. It could be a you know a rocky four years. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.